0: So the topic of tonight's talk <clears throat> is three-part. It's aspiration, expectation, acceptance. And I'd like to start with a poet that often comes to mind for me at this time of year, probably because I first uh, heard him most deeply that I can remember sitting next door at the retreat center in the fall during the long fall course. The poet is Ryokan, the Zen hermit monk from the 18th century Japan. I find many of his poems have this tone, this quality of a kind of amazing wholehearted presence in his experience and the way he describes it, and also a sense of real ease in his being, even though it's not always entirely pleasant what he's describing. So this is the poem. The autumn night has lengthened And the cold has begun to penetrate my mattress. My 60th year is near. Yet there is no one to take pity on this weak old body. The rain has finally stopped. Now just a thin stream trickles from the roof. All night, the incessant cry of insects Wide awake, unable to sleep, leaning on my pillow, I watch the pure, bright rays of sunshine. He seems to me so at home in his aging body, with the rain falling on the roof, even in his loneliness and so, so present for the light when it streams in, in the morning. And it seems to me that in large degree our meditation practice is a similar kind of process, a process of becoming more at home, making ourselves more at home here in this world of sights and sounds, (laughs) sensations, thoughts, feelings. Training ourselves in this more and more fully in awareness, in loving kindness, knowing this breath, this body, this mind, knowing aversion, knowing clinging, knowing wisdom, knowing compassion. It takes a tremendous willingness to look deeply enough at ourselves at what goes on in our inner worlds, at how we relate to our own experience, to come to that place of being so deeply at home in our experience. I don't know about you, but for me, in these last few days, I've really been feeling the change of the season. I know it's been happening for a while, but somehow, you know, I found myself saying to people yesterday, it really feels like November. Funny because it was November 1st. <laughs> Just the bareness of the trees and the cold coming in, the cold nights. There's a beautiful, clear, clear sky tonight. It's cold, and the stars are sparkling out there. It feels like November. It's a kind of bittersweet time of year, with the ending of summer, the dying of certain forms of life, flowers, grasses, and then the kind of ebbing of other forms of life in nature, where it feels as though everything's kind of going inward. It seems always to me a perfect time to be on retreat, because you're uh, in sync, in a way, in terms of that going inward with the natural world. One of the things that I'm very involved with throughout the spring and summer and in the fall, but in a different way in the fall, is a large uh, vegetable garden in my yard. And so it's that time in the cycle of the garden for harvest, for... I mean, we're still holding on to certain things, going out with blankets at night. and covering things, and then uncovering them in the light of day. But soon, we won't even be able to preserve the chard. (laughs) It will be time to pull what's left out there in, and turn the beds over, and let the garden rest. And for me, it's a great uh, reminder about cycles, ebbs and flows, and kind of trusting that process, the rightness of it, even in the dormant phase. And I think practice is similar to that, that it has its own cycles. There are cycles of arrival and settling, finding some calm, some continuity in practice, things deepening, tranquility, and then perhaps certain kinds of agitation, something bubbling up. I like to think of this as cycles of peacefulness and purification. Can we sense the rightness of that? in the same way that the garden has its cycles, that nature has its cycles. Certainly I've seen in my own experience that it's easy to lose sight of that trust in the cycles when I'm in a more challenging one, challenging phase of practice, when things are stirred up, when it feels more like purification than peace. It's so easy then to assume that something's wrong. Especially if we're experiencing something like aversion, or fear, or agitation. It's hard to think that's right. Or loneliness, or longing. But as you know, if you've done some practice, as you no doubt have over the years, these things come and go. They're cyclical. And it doesn't help so much, (laughs) if at all, to judge where we're at in our practice, to try to figure out where we are in the unfolding of our experience, what usually feels more helpful is settling back and resting in that trust that what's arising is what needs paying attention to. It's, where, it's what we have to work with. It's where our practice is. So if it feels helpful, you might like to remind yourself about that from time to time, that you can trust that, that simplicity, that no matter what's happening, we can open to it, all of it, include it all, that awakening is possible within all these different aspects of our experience rather than separate from them. And then, at times, when it is part of the cycle that's more challenging, more agitated, more difficult to face, it might be really useful to realign, to remember what brings us here, to realign with our intention or our aspiration. What brings us to practice? There's something very powerful about consciously connecting with that, with that aspiration. In a way, it's a kind of fuel for our practice, kind of like uh, putting gas in the engine. Just that simple act of remembering why we're here, why this is important, what we're doing here. It's empowering. It's something that can help to support us in difficult times or perhaps just in neutral times when we're not particularly feeling the juice of practice. We're just feeling like we're punching in at the beginning of the day. And punching out at the end, putting in our time. This is from uh, the yogi Patanjali who said this about aspiration. When you are inspired by some great purpose, some extraordinary project, all your thoughts break their bounds. Your mind transcends limitations. Your consciousness expands in every direction, and you find yourself in a new, great, and wonderful world. Dominant forces, faculties, and talents become alive, and you discover yourself to be a greater person by far than you ever dreamed you could be. Maybe that's one end of the spectrum in terms of tuning in, tuning into our aspiration where we really can harness that power that energy for motivation and there's a real power in it but we're not always at that end of the spectrum with knowing why we're here. Maybe we're somewhere in the middle, or maybe we're not even very strongly clear about our intention, our aspiration. Maybe it's just that we sense the possibility of a deeper happiness, a heart, that feels more free, more at ease. Maybe it's about learning to be kind, kind to ourselves, to others. That's a pretty basic motivation, and yet quite profound, really, when we fully align with that, with what that means. I'd like to share this little story that I love from the performance artist, Lori Anderson. She lives in New York, and she's talking about an experience she had there. So she says... Last fall, the Dalai Lama came to New York City to do a two-week ceremony called the Kala Chakra, which is a prayer to heal the earth. And woven into these prayers were a series of vows that he asked us to take. And before I knew it, I had taken a vow to be kind for the rest of my life. And I walked out of there and I thought, for the rest of my life? What have I done? This is a disaster. (laughs) And I was really worried. Had I promised too much? Not enough? I was really in a panic. They had come from Tibet for the ceremony, and they were walking around Midtown in their new brown shoes. And I went up to one of the monks and said, can you come with me to have a cappuccino right now and to talk? And so we went into this little Italian place. He had never had coffee before. So he kept talking faster and faster. And I kept saying, look, I don't know whether I promised too much or too little. Can you help me? And he was being really practical. He said, look, don't limit yourself. Don't be so strict. Open it up. He said, the mind is like a wild white horse. And when you make a corral for it, make sure it's not too small. And another thing, when your house burns down, Just walk away. And another thing. Keep your eyes open. And one more thing. Keep moving, because it's a long way home. I think the part that I like best about that story, aside from her sense of panic about what she'd done, is that sense of, or that, instruction from the monk to keep moving because it's a long way home. For me, that helps. It helps me to, to see practice more as being on a path, sort of aiming in a direction that feels skillful, that feels like it leads to less suffering for myself, for those I come into contact with through my actions, more like being on that path than getting there, that it's actually quite fine to be on the path, to have embraced a practice as a practice, ongoing, never-ending. Keep moving. I like that. I was thinking that maybe the trick to aspiration is letting it be an aim rather than a destination. And that maybe the tendency that we have to fixate on a destination is what uh, shifts aspiration into expectation. Or at least it's a setup for certain kinds of expectations to arise at different times. This is another riyakon. My hut lies in the middle of a dense forest. Every year, the green ivy grows longer. No news of the affairs of men, only the occasional song of the woodcutter. The sun shines, and I mend my robe. When the moon comes out, I read Buddhist poems. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find meaning, stop chasing after so many things. I feel confident that we, probably as a group, can appreciate that and that that is a part of our lives already, not to be so much chasing after things, perhaps worldly things. I mean, you have to have some, some of that in order to, you know, remove yourself from life and sit yourself down on a meditation cushion for any period of time. And that's in itself an act of uh, not chasing after things. But it's interesting that that chasing after mind can come with us into the meditation hall, into retreat. And then how does it manifest? How do we experience it? Maybe outwardly in terms of our preferences. Any thoughts any of you have had about how things should be here? (laughs) It's not uncommon to notice those kinds of thoughts. You know, it should be more quiet, or warmer, or cooler, or this person should, or that person should, or I should. That's that mind. And then inwardly, how does that happen? How does that express itself? The chasing after things. Are we chasing after certain experiences in our practice? Certain mind states? Are we chasing after answers or? Understanding. We might even be chasing after the perfect heart of metta. It's different. That energy of uh, expectation and looking for something that we think should be happening. That's different than strengthening the capacity to be aware to see what is actually happening or strengthening our ability practicing being kind being open to our experience When we're really practicing in that way, when we're aligning ourselves with awareness of what is, when we're aiming for continuity of awareness, it doesn't matter what's arising. It truly doesn't. It's not that certain parts of our changing experience are worthy of our attention and other parts are not although it's easy to feel that way. (coughs) It's so easy to think that a spiritual path or a meditation practice is a linear progression. You know, and we'd like that progression to be sort of Nice and neat and orderly and uphill (laughs) until we reach the top. And generally, it's not like that. Although there is some truth in the fact that we do make progress in our practice. So it's not black or white. If we're clinging to some idea, though, of how we think, should be of where we think we should be in our practice, it's a trap and it's a form of identification that I should be, you know, more whatever. Or, you know, I'm not doing well because this is happening. I recently had uh, a very strong uh, retreat-like experience around this, around expectation. Although I was not on retreat, I was living my daily life, working and living at home. And this was just a couple of weeks ago, the first half of October ended up feeling like I was on a very intensive retreat that was characterized primarily by aversion, which is not something that I, in my meditation practice, usually experience a lot of. Um, It's not that I'm a stranger to it, but uh, it's not usually the predominant mind state. So... What happened was um, my husband and I had visitors from halfway around the world. So they came from really far. And they stayed for 15 days with us. (laughs) And I'm um, the kind of person who finds uh, my quiet home life to be a real source of rest and renewal, a kind of refuge, really. Although, you know, it's not like the rest of my life is so bad because I'm working and living, you know, working in these retreat centers usually. Uh, So it's pretty lovely. But still, home and just being able to sort of let down at home is something that I need. (laughs) or I thought I needed. <laughs> so it was a challenge to have people that I didn't know very well uh, there for so long. I think there's lots of jokes and things about you know, house guests, <laughs> that they shouldn't stay for more than, I don't know, a few days. But 15 was a long time. And my expectation was that I would be consistently kind and very generous. And that kind of met my, um, <laughs> my self-image <laughs> of what I could do. And I didn't quite do it. I didn't do too badly, but there were moments where I would respond, you know, I'd hear my voice and it would have an edge to it of irritation or impatience. Or there'd be ways where I would feel, just in terms of my quality of presence, um, that I wasn't really being as generous as I like to be. I'm not even sure that they noticed. <laughs> but for me, it was excruciating. It kind of tormented me, particularly at night, you know, when I would be awake, which happens sometimes at night for me, laying in bed. And I would, he- those ripples, those repercussions of my edgy <laughs> speech would come back. And I would feel awful. I just felt like I was failing. My husband was very forgiving (laughs) and very supportive, and that helped a lot. But what was important for me was to see at a certain point that I had this very strong expectation and a lot of identification. And so in the end, it actually ended up being Although a difficult um, period of time, and in a way I thought of it as a retreat, a difficult retreat, very, um, uh, it ha- not very, but transforming in some way that I, I wouldn't have expected. So it was humbling, and in a way it felt as though certain edges in my being, um, got worn down, sort of through the work of trying to do my best, to show up, to do my best, to fail, (laughs) to recognize eventually that, you know, I was holding myself to too high a standard, and I was identified, and that I needed to practice acceptance and forgiveness, and I needed to have that fresh willingness to just begin again in the next moment after failing. So it ended up being very fruitful. Um, And ultimately, a strong reminder that it's about the work or the practice of aiming and making a balanced effort than actually succeeding. Succeeding (laughs) by whatever standards we're holding for ourselves. Sometimes that shift from expectation, from where we want to be, into acceptance is hard. It's really hard. It kind of takes sort of being knocked around for a while sometimes before we can do it. It did for me in that instance. And I can recall times on the cushion when it has as well. But that shift into acceptance is so powerful, so freeing, in a way so healing. I often like to uh, chat with my husband a little bit at dinner before I come to do a talk and, you know, just share with him what I'm going to be talking about and get his perspective or examples from his life. And he reminded me of one that I can't believe I forgot, (laughs) Um, and that's parenting. I mean, what an amazing area to notice that work of recognizing expectations, which might be incredibly good ones, you know, the hopes we have for our children, the expectations, and then eventually (laughs) that shift into, as they grow older, you know, and move into their own lives more fully, into acceptance of who they are. And trust, you know, it's a really powerful area. And it takes practice. It takes time to learn to let go, to bring in more acceptance of who they are, of what their path is. So what does acceptance? mean here on the meditation cushion? In a way, it's really simple. (laughs) In a way, our practice is about learning not to interfere. In a way, learning to do nothing in terms of doing. And then just to show up, to be really present with what's happening, to pay attention. And when we really show up, when we really pay attention, it unfolds. The Dharma unfolds. We see clearly. The more we practice, the more we see that we can't really control our experience inwardly or outwardly, that we can't stop any of that flow of experience from coming or from going when it's something we like and we'd rather that it stayed. And thankfully, peace doesn't depend on stopping any of it. Something I like to remember in practice is that There's nothing I need to add to my experience, and nothing I need to take away from it. It sounds simple, but when I actually can put it into practice, it's freeing. Sometimes I've experimented with using the mental note, enough, this is enough, this breath, this sitting here, this amount of kindness, this lack of it, this moment is enough. Nothing to add, nothing to remove from our experience. It's not uncommon in meditators to think that thinking will cease or that we'll no longer experience difficult emotions. That if we were only doing this right, if we only really got it, our minds and hearts would be empty, clear, totally silent and still. But it's not about Avoiding experience, it's about learning to open to it with wisdom, with compassion. And so we open the field of awareness more and more, including more and more. The pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral experience... Calm, tranquility, reactivity, irritation, expectations we have for ourselves. Seeing it all clearly, not being ruled by it. Seeing that it changes, it's impersonal, it's not I. And when that sense of identification loosens, what's there? Spaciousness, maybe. Maybe calm, clarity. Sometimes it can feel like nothing's happening. We might wonder what we're doing. Should we dig a little deeper? Should we stir something up so there's something to pay attention to? But sometimes it's the stillness of non-reactivity non-clinging, the stillness of equanimity, not being swayed by all of the different arisings, all of the different coming and going. We all know how to do this. And I'm sure we all experience many moments of this. Just that kind of wholehearted presence, seeing clearly without trying to fix or change our experience or improve it. It's actually an easier way of being. So often in our lives, we think that we need to tinker and manipulate and control our experience to make things better somehow more acceptable, more okay, to make ourselves safer. But it's a struggle that, in fact, alienates us from life. It's a disconnecting force to be doing that. Wrong book. This is a quote from someone I'd never heard of. I just found it in this book of quotations. <laughs> His name is Morris West, and he wrote The Shoes of the Fisherman. And this is from that. <clears throat> it costs so much to be a full human being that there are very few who have the enlightenment or the courage to pay the price. One has to abandon altogether the search for security and reach out to the risk of living with both arms. One has to embrace the world like a lover. One has to accept pain as a condition of existence. One has to court doubt and darkness as the cost of knowing. One needs a will stubborn in conflict, but apt always to total acceptance of every consequence of living and dying. Total acceptance of every consequence of living and dying. We're practicing that. That acceptance piece is critical in terms of finding peace, in terms of ending the battles that we wage in ourselves, in terms of learning to meet and navigate skillfully rather than be ruled by difficult experience. There's no wrong experience that you can have in meditation. Nothing that needs to be excluded. It's not about right or wrong experience. It's about wholeheartedness, presence, intention, kindness. We're learning to be open and present for the truth of our lives without clinging, without resistance, without confusion. And in doing this, we're growing in wisdom, in understanding, and coming to a place of deeper ease, deeper peace or freedom in our lives. I'd like to close with another poem. This one's called In the World, <clears throat> and the woman who wrote it is Bridget Lowry. In the strange early morning half-light, we sit... In the cloudiness of our questioning we sit in our madness and our clarity we sit in the midst of doing too much in the midst of too much to do we sit in the warm arms of our shared sorrow we sit in community and in loneliness we sit In sweet exhaustion, we sit. In the blazing energy of being alive, we sit. Here with the singing crickets, here with each electric bird song, here with the rippling of breezes and the dry grasses, here with the cobwebs and the clouds and the dusty road, upon us, us in the sound and the sound in us, us in the world and the world in us. Let's sit for a few minutes.